Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about some recent things that have been happening in what you might call the political landscape here in the United States. In particular, I want to talk about how the narrative of zero-sum thinking is being used in a lot of cases very intentionally to manipulate people. So you might remember from Way back in, I think, episode one, we talked a little bit about what is zero-sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking is the essence of scarcity mindset. It's the belief that for some people to have what they need or what they want, other people will not be able to have what they need, right? There's a game in which there has to be a winning team and a losing team or a winner and a bunch of losers. And of course, there are some specific games that work that way. But life itself is not fundamentally a zero-sum game. However, we are often taught that it is. And a lot of political setups have been strategically spun to make it seem as if we are living in a zero-sum circumstance. And this is, of course, very convenient for the ruling class, the owning class, and anybody who wants to rise to power in a fascist or authoritarian way. Inciting zero-sum thinking is a classic move from the playbook of how to be a fascist that has been used throughout history. As a Jewish person, I'm very aware of the fact that Jews were famously the scapegoat in Hitler's zero-sum game. His story was, things are not good for our economy, it's the fault of the Jews, all we need to do is get rid of them, and suddenly there will be enough for everyone. And we see this exact same pattern with plenty of other groups of people throughout history. This was used as the excuse for colonization, for slavery, for pretty much all genocides and many wars across the world. And of course, today we see it all the time. In the United States in particular, it is a constant talking point about our southern border and immigrants and refugees who are being blamed and treated as if they don't deserve basic human rights because of some made up zero sum game that we're playing where we are on one team and they're on a different team. And I don't even know who the we or the they are in this story. (laughs) And that requires a lot of complex tracking to say, who do you think you are? Like, where are you in this narrative? You know, something to point out is that the current Republican uh, politicians and leadership are in the minority in terms of their belief systems and the policies or lack thereof that they would like to put into place. 
So how do the extreme minority gain power in a democracy? They do it by convincing the poor masses that the reason they are not getting their resource needs met is because some other guy is taking it all. And that other guy is always, in every single case, an other. It has to be an other or else it wouldn't work. So this othering is, of course, done through triggering racism and xenophobia and anti-Semitism and all the isms. And this has worked every time. And very tragically, it continues to work. It is working very well to this day as a political strategy. So I'm going to be referencing a couple of things that have happened this week, both of which might be upsetting to you. And you've probably heard about them already. But if you need to take a little break, please feel free to do that. Take care of yourself. So I'm going to start by talking about the baby formula crisis or the baby formula shortage that we've had here in the United States. Uh, There's been this temporary shortage. We could say that it's uh, kind of a complicated issue in that there's multiple factors, but it's not really that complicated. It's it's pretty straightforward. And the Biden administration is currently in the middle of doing a bunch of things to try to solve the shortage, and that will probably be effective pretty quickly here. So this could be old news by a week or two from now, but it shouldn't be old news because it's actually really exemplary of a couple of things we do need to be talking about. One of the main reasons for the shortage is that there's a monopoly on the production of baby formula. There's basically something like three companies that produce almost all of it. And there's a single company called Abbott that is responsible for 40% of the supply of baby formula. This is a very profitable company that has spent more than $5 billion buying back its own stock since 2019. That's $5 billion that they could have been reinvesting in the quality and the safety of their product, in the welfare of their workers, in all kinds of things that would have probably created a wonderful cushion for this contemporary shortage. But instead of reinvesting in their company in any meaningful way, they did the classic scarcity capitalist move of a stock buyback to increase the value of their stock which doesn't create any more actual value in the world. So I really don't understand, by the way, how stock buybacks are legal. I, I Like, why are they legal? Okay, so, so they did a bunch of stock buybacks. They didn't reinvest in their quality or their safety protocol. And in fact, it turns out, at least according to a whistleblower who alerted the FDA back in October that they were cutting corners with their safety and their production and falsifying documents, that they, not only were they not reinvesting, but they were actually doing some sort of criminal things. They weren't complying with regulatory standards and they were lying about it. And the next thing we know, there are some infant deaths that are traced back to their product. And in February, the FDA shuts them down and issues a major recall of their product. So here we are today with a supply shortage that in large part, has been created by this situation with this one company. And it's worth noting, of course, that a baby formula shortage is a really serious problem because it's a really essential product that is life-giving to babies who cannot eat anything else. I don't know if you know this about babies, but if they aren't being breastfed or if breast milk isn't coming in a plentiful enough amount for them or all kinds of other reasons, like they may have medical issues that make it too difficult for them to drink breast milk, They may not be paired with their biological mother and on and on and on. So it's a super serious issue. It's it's one of those fundamental human needs. And it's really you can't replace it with anything else. It is 
the only sort of known safe food for infants. So the shortage is a big deal. It's really stressful and potentially life-threatening. And we could have avoided it with a lot of different choices. And what's really frustrating about this is that, of course, Abbott is not shut down for good. In fact, part of the Biden administration's thing they're doing right now to try to get the shortage solved is helping them reopen. And you can guarantee that they're not going to be held accountable for what they're actually responsible for because, you know, they've become this too big to fail company, right? And this is the whole problem. There shouldn't be a single company that is too big to fail in this way. There should simply be more competitors in the market, more people producing baby formula so that we can choose a better company, one that makes better choices with their profits. So, okay, that's the situation. And, you know, I think the solution to the situation is fairly obvious. If we didn't want to run into this again in the future, or if we wanted to try to solve some of the root issues here that are not only specific to this industry, but that are happening all over the place, we might hold companies more accountable. We might encourage more fair market competition. We might have tighter regulations and better follow through with our regulations. We might decide to stop allowing stock buybacks. There's all kinds of solutions that we could come up with that would probably help to curb the root of this problem. The frustrating part is that I doubt any of these things will happen. However, that's not even the part of this that I really want to zero in on today, because what I want to talk about is what happened in the cultural conversation about the shortage. Now, the frustrating thing is that given this this basic scenario, I think a lot of people, like a lot of Americans, despite their political leanings, would probably agree that some of the things I just said, if, if they could agree on the facts, they would probably agree on the solution. Like, yeah, I think the company should be held accountable. Yes, I think the company should invest in their workers and invest in the quality of their product. Yes, I do believe there should be fair market competition, right? Like those are some some basic things that are not actually that controversial. So how how do the political leaders who want to keep their base engaged in a minority role opinion want to spin this so that they can move the conversation from the places where we agree to the places where there's no way to agree? Here's one example. And I was not aware of this until recently. I was looking on my neighborhood. I'm part of my neighborhood's Buy Nothing group. And I was noticing there was actually a lot of really lovely, supportive resource sharing on some different Facebook groups that I'm a part of, where, you know, if one neighbor found formula at a store, they would post and say, hey, everyone, there's formula at the store on this one street if you want to go check it out, if you need some. So it was really cool to see how much of that type of supportive resource sharing was happening in these neighborhood communities. And... I really think actually, by the way, that that what's so cool about that is that it really does represent the majority of Americans. It represents how people really are. People want to help each other. People want to share with each other. However, in the same neighborhood group where that there was this supportive thread going on, there was, of course, this dude who was like, well, you know, you know who appointed the head of the FDA? It was Joe Biden, right? You know, he just wants to get whatever, politicize the issue. And, you know, I'm like, hey, you want to politicize an issue? Fine, I'll throw down with you. So I get into that thread. (laughs) I know, I know, I shouldn't have engaged, but I was like, and I wasn't trying to be argumentative. I had a moment where I was like, maybe he really doesn't understand. (laughs) So I 
said, hey, you know, this company, here's a little bit about their history, right? Like their stock buybacks, their they're cutting corners. They were hiding information from the FDA. The FDA actually did shut them down. That's actually part of the problem. You know, I was trying to explain to him more of the, the roots of the issue. And I knew that I was probably just going to be engaging someone who could not or would not engage with me in a, in a rational debate. And he didn't. He actually didn't respond at all. I was like, okay, he didn't respond, whatever. I don't need to get into that with him. I didn't know if that would actually go any further. But then this um, this other guy, another neighbor, a dude, chimes in. And, you know, I, I understand because baby formula is really a guy's issue. So, you know, they get the conversation going. This other guy says, hey, here's the real reason for this. And he basically just repeats all the things I've already said about how there was this monopoly, not monopoly from the company and, you know, they created the shortage and he posts an article about it. And then the guy responds with, well, it's because, you know, they're shipping it all to babies at the border. That's what's happening to all the formula. They're shipping it all to babies at the border. Why should we be giving it to them? So now I'm just an audience member to the thread because clearly they don't want me to engage, or at least the original guy didn't want me to engage. So I just am watching this play out with the two of them. And the, you know, more patient, I would, I would describe him, the patient neighbor says, hmm, you know, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I'll go do a little research so, rather than just saying, wow, that sounds really racist. Or, you know, he's like, I'll go do a little research. He comes back. He's he's looked at Snopes, right? You know, Snopes is like a pretty great uh, fact checking website where you can find out if something's true or not. And there's a lot of common misconceptions that they will do pretty in-depth investigation into. So, so he posts his findings on Snopes. And what I love about Snopes is that they don't put things into a false binary. Like it, like they don't just say, well, it's true or it's false. They try to tell you why people might have thought it was true, but but then also the bigger context of what people need to understand. So they come so the Snopes article says, well, there's this picture circulating of a shipment of baby formula that is at a, a immigrant detention center at the border. And so they said, yeah, that's a real picture. And yes. There is, in fact, baby formula at the immigration, immigrant detention centers at the border. It's actually required by law that when we detain babies, that we feed them. That's just, you know, what we require by law. And you can understand that, right? You, know, you can understand how that is a baseline of humanity, just baseline of humanity, that if you're going to detain a baby, that you also feed it. So the article says that and then also says, but the shortage is not being created because the babies at the border are drinking so much formula. The shortage is being created because of this monopoly on the production of baby formula and yada, yada. And, you know, they mentioned the, the complexity of the situation. And so, you know, this patient neighbor posts this Snopes article and the other guy comes back and he says, but why do their babies get it and ours don't? Why should their babies get this formula and ours don't, right? So you can hear the zero-sum thinking in the way he's thinking about this, the way he's been trained and told to think about this. This is the narrative that he has received from right-wing politicians and pundits and leaders. They are trying to move the conversation into a zero-sum situation rather than say, how do we solve the problem? They are saying, who do we blame for the problem? 
who can we blame and point to and other? And, you know, the answer is always the same for them. So it's not like they're just looking for anybody. They have a very specific group that they always want to blame because that's the group that it has been most effective for them. That's what's been easiest for them is to always blame immigrants, to always blame non-white immigrants. So there's something about this guy's logic that's really hard to unpack then because it's like he's stuck in an imaginary game where he's not trying to be cruel. He doesn't think he's trying to be cruel. He doesn't even think he's racist and xenophobic. He's thinking, but we we are here. This is our country and we don't even have enough baby formula for us and now they're giving it to them and they don't, you know, they just they're crashing the party and taking up all the baby formula. That's how he's thinking of it. He's not thinking it all the way through to what he really means, which is like, so you want us to not feed babies that we are detaining at the border. But, so the frustrating part of this whole kind of thread, this comment thread, is that this guy was completely refusing to look at the root problem of the resource issue. He's totally fixated on this surface zero-sum scarcity. He doesn't even care how the problem got there. He cares that now that there is this shortage, that those babies are getting a resource that other babies may not. And even though it isn't actually at the expense of other babies, right, that's not the real situation. It's just such an easy, low-hanging fruit of the human brain to try to trigger that response, to try to trigger, like, they're getting something you're not getting. They're getting something at your expense. And because it's so effective, this zero-sum triggering, again, it's been used time and time again by fascist politicians. So to recap. Zero-sum thinking is a tool of fascism. It is being used on purpose. It is a story that is told to us to trigger scarcity reactions. It is always paired with racism and xenophobia because you have to believe there's an other in order to believe that there's a zero-sum game. If there aren't two teams, there can't be a zero-sum game. So you have to believe in the division and reinforce the division. And then it becomes easier for people like that guy to believe that they aren't being racist and xenophobic. They think they're simply looking at the resource reality. They think they're asking a very rational question, which is why should my baby go without food and their baby gets food? But implied inside of that is, of course, a whole host of racist and xenophobic ideas, like me and my baby are more entitled to be alive than they are. And this leads us to another very difficult thing that has occurred in this last week. So. I'm recording this on Tuesday. Just this past Saturday, there was a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. That was an act of domestic terrorism. It was an act of white supremacist neo-Nazism. It was an act that some people are even referring to as a lynching. And you probably know the what I'm talking about. And if you don't know, you can read the basics. I'll give you a couple of links to get caught up. But basically, an 18-year-old, a tragically misguided teenager wrote 180 pages of racist garbage to try to give purpose to his psychopathic rampage. And he cited as part of his motivation, the great replacement theory, which is, um, I'll, I'll also link a little bit. There's a great Guardian article that talks a little bit about the history of this and then really compiles all of the contemporary Republican leaders who have been using the great replacement theory and normalizing it and making it mainstream again including, of course, Tucker Carlson, who has talked about it a number of times and who is very mainstream, unfortunately, 
uh, you know, he has a huge following and what he says really changes the culture. It really helps set the narrative. And the crux of this idea of this replacement theory is that, I mean, there's, it sounds like there's kind of some different versions of it. And there's an element of conspiracy theory to it where it's like the Democrats or the Jews or some collection of Democrats and Jews are all trying to bring as many immigrants across the border as they can so that we can make sure that that we're replacing the, you know, the great, this mythic white race, you know, like as if there are some people that are this pure white race, which is kind of absurd anyway. But so we're going to replace this, this mythic pure white race with all these like mixed race children or what have you. And the, and the, with the ultimate aim that they're all going to vote Democrat because why would they vote Republican? Now, you know, you have to question when they want to insist that they're not the party of racism, but then they don't believe that a person of color would ever vote for them. You have to question why is that? But anyway, obviously that's not what's happening. There is not a conspiracy. And this is clearly more of the same zero-sum xenophobic racism that is a tool of fascism. And politically, it's a real piece of work because it accomplishes several fascist aims in one go, right? It creates an other actually creates a couple of others. It creates the southern border immigrants, which they're really easy to scapegoat because they're not white. They are not wealthy. It also creates an other with all liberals and all Democrats and all Jews and all people who could be considered part of this big conspiracy. And even when those people have really good rational reasons for why they're doing the things they're doing, you can ignore those reasons because it's all part of this evil conspiracy, right? And it also delegitimizes our democracy. So it builds in a political excuse for why democracy itself is no longer valid, because they're essentially saying that Democrats are busing people in to vote for them. So there's no vote that could be legitimate. So by throwing doubt into the legitimacy of our voting system and of democracy, it creates an excuse for why extremist Republicans are maintaining power, despite the fact that they represent a minority of Americans. And this is exactly how fascism happens. I think my point here is that I want to make it really clear that zero-sum thinking is a tool of manipulation. Um, it's a story, it's a narrative that we have been told over and over and over again to keep power where it is. And it's an oppressive mindset. It's an oppressive way of thinking. It is creating harm. And it's really important that we work to dismantle zero-sum thinking. And I want to say that with a caveat that I don't want you to feel shame or guilt or something like that if you find yourself having zero-sum thinking, because I do think it's perfectly normal to feel that way sometimes. And in addition to probably being a little bit how our brain works, it's also deeply conditioned. So we all have zero-sum thinking at times. So I would encourage you, if you want to liberate your brain from, from this trap, notice when you're believing that someone else's gain is your loss. Notice when you're believing that you cannot gain for yourself because it might hurt somebody else. Notice when you're being pulled into the false binary of us versus them or winners versus losers, or this side and that side, right? And whenever I can find myself thinking in the way of a false binary, a question I always like to ask myself is, what is the third way? 
Or I also like to ask myself, what is the win-win solution? It's amazing what that question can unlock. When you ask what is the win-win solution or what is the third way, I always find myself having a new idea about how to solve a problem that doesn't compromise the essential purpose for anybody. And even though I know we may be a long way from integrating win-win solutions into our political landscape here in the States, and, and that's a little sad, I hope, I hope we will do more of it. I used to believe we would, and it, the last few years have been really difficult because there's been so much intentional binary narrative and zero-sum narrative and division, and that, and I feel that division acutely even with certain family members we have who have ended up on the other side of it, and it's really hard to not fall into the binary, uh, but it's worth trying and it's worth noticing when my brain wants to repeat those tools of fascism. So it's a little bit like, I guess what I'm what I'm gonna suggest for now is that at the very least, we can work on trying to uproot the fascist thinking that we've been conditioned with and to start noticing it and just calling it for what it is, you know? Just that's what that is. There's no, it's not complicated. It's not more complicated than you understand. You do understand it. Okay, I covered a lot of different kind of big subjects today. If you have any thoughts or questions that you want to add to this conversation, I want to invite you to reach out. You can email me at kate at kateholly.com. Uh, as always, I'll put some links in the show notes so that you can see where I got some of my research. You can read up on things. You can sign up for my mailing list and other good stuff. That's it for today. Take a deep breath. Take good care of yourself. I'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.